Bonjour! And welcome, everybody. Thank you all for listening to a very special episode of BAM, Boris and Matt. Today, it's more of a Sam. We got Sully and Matt joined by my good friend, my co-host, way back in the day, my former podcast and partner for a couple of uh, podcasts, uh, a couple trial episodes we've done. But anyway, man, uh, Pat, Sully, welcome to the show. Nice to hear from you. Very nice to hear from you uh, as well, Matt. Uh, thank you for having me. I I hope Boris is feeling better soon enough, but I'm happy to uh, come in and try and Wally pep him. <laughs> I love it. I absolutely love it. So yeah, man, uh, it, it's funny you mentioned Wally pep off the start. Uh, here at BAM, as you, uh, I, I hope you've checked out some shows, but if, if not, that's fine. If this is the first show you're listening to, thank you very much for checking us out. Uh, we talk some sports, we talk some entertainment, then at the end we talk some sports entertainment, the professional wrestling. So that's what we're going to do today. But uh, first and foremost, man, how are you doing? How How is Pat Sully? How have you navigated the pandemic? How's life? How are you, man? Oh, it's been... It's been fine. I mean, I guess all of us have gotten used to uh, how things have changed. Things have started to get uh, somewhat back to normal. Yeah, we could talk inflation all day. And um, I was staying at home for like a year and a half. So that was something. Got uh, got a lot of weird TV watching and watching old wrestling at that time, uh, which was a lot of fun. Because one thing I could not really get into as much uh, was sports during the pandemic. I found there were certain ones that... Uh, it was fine to watch them without a crowd. Like the NBA was a lot of fun. MLB unwatchable for me. And I'm a huge oh. baseball fan normally. But uh, yeah, pandemic sports were very interesting. And part of the point I'm getting to there, I fell right off the wrestling tip for about 12 to 18 months and just uh, got back into it, uh, I'd say, in the last uh, year. And that was after watching almost nonstop for 24. 25 years before that. Yeah, no doubt, man. I, I know we went to university together and uh, I kind of, kind of bonded a little bit over our love of wrestling. And yeah, man, I, I've known you as a lifelong wrestling fan. So I got you back into it. Um, well, literally, literally you're going to laugh when you uh, hear this because uh, you know this about me. It was Eddie Kingston going to AEW. <laughs> Of course, of course, absolutely. Uh, that, that's awesome, though. Eddie Kingston on on like a mainstream platform as a as a big fan of Eddie, he sucked you in. Yeah, um, it's one of those weird things where I, I guess I got into indie wrestling. Well, we both did the way a lot of people do uh, indie music, or when they get really into stand up comedy and they end up checking out all these uh, comics that don't have their own Netflix specials and. Just one of the guys that I bought heavy, heavy stock into was Eddie Kingston. And of all the indie guys, he was the only one that never really got a shot that I really, really loved and believed in. And then in his late 30s, he finally gets a crack in AEW, and he's run with that ball in the last two years. So I couldn't be happier. Uh, and he's still the last wrestler that I'm really, truly a fan of in the sense he has a big match. I'm going to tune in. I guess the last two are him and Samoa Joe. Um, I, I keep forgetting that Joe's still there. They're just not using him quite as prominently as Kingston. Yeah, true. Now, that's awesome, though, man. And uh, if Tony Khan, if you're listening, and we know that you are, uh, oh. Eddie Kingston, <laughs> right? Eddie Kingston is officially a draw. He draws people in, uh, push the man to the moon, put the title on him. 
well, yeah, hey, man, I, I'm glad that you have survived. You're hanging in there like the rest of us. And uh, the, the hair looks great. I'm losing mine pretty quickly. I don't know if you can see that, but yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm just, I did actually desperately need a haircut. So that's why I'm just playing with all these like errant strands. But the hair curse, it doesn't get long, it just gets big. I, I feel you. Yeah, the poof. Oh, I missed the days of the poof. I once poofed with the best. Of, wait, that didn't come out right. Uh, anyway, better than all right. It came out fine. <laughs> all right. Yeah, let's move on to some sports chat, man. We got to start with some baseball. That's your specialty. We got the trade deadline coming up 6 p.m. Tuesday, August 2nd, which uh, is right about the time that you'll be here in this a couple hours before. So, yeah, I think some big trades that happened recently. The biggest one to me, Josh Hader to San Diego. That's massive for the Padres. Definitely. And kind of an unconventional trade in the sense that Josh Hader's basically been, if not the best closer, the one of the top three for the last few years. The reason I see the Brewers uh, doing this, uh, they are heavy contention for a playoff spot. And it's not like they trade him for prospects. They basically trade him for additional bullpen depth. And a little more security going forward since Hader is an expiring deal, I believe, after next season. So there is another year and a half of team control going to San Diego. But it was interesting to see the return. Uh, Tyler Rogers, who, if memory serves, he was on the Minnesota Twins to start the year, got traded from them to the Padres, and now heading back to the Midwest, uh, going to the uh, Milwaukee Brewers and uh Oh, I'm so bad with the pronunciation. Uh, Denison uh, Lamette, another very, very usable uh, bullpen arm. So in a weird way, the Brewers got they got worse in the bullpen, but it might be a negligible loss because they got extra arms to help uh, you know, spread around the workload. And they do have Devin Williams, uh, who was the best setup man in baseball and could easily slide in and be a top 10 closer. Yeah, man. Well, definitely awesome breakdown there. Yeah, Diddleson Lamed is somebody who stood out to me because he was a formerly highly touted pitcher. Who did he have Tommy John? He was out for a very long time, right? I believe so. I don't. Uh, I don't remember offhand, and I don't uh, have Baseball Reference uh, up in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, no. I, I so uh, interesting deal on both sides. I I thought Josh Hader actually. I didn't realize he was. Uh, he had a year and a half left on the deal. I, I kind of looking at that trade thought he was expiring, but yeah, that's interesting for San Diego too. There, uh, Frankie Montes and oh, sorry, go ahead. I, I might have misspoke. Uh, he could be expiring. It's just I, I think when I was looking at the trade earlier, I remembered seeing it was a uh, an additional year, which because um, I would have assumed an expiring for them to cut bait while they're in the middle of a playoff race to downgrade for their uh, lefty reliever with uh, going to Rogers who. It's still very good. I mean, it's lefty relievers are at a premium in baseball, but Rogers is still, I'd say, a top three guy pitching from that side of the uh, the bump, especially with Aaron Loop taking a step back and Jake Diekman, who also got traded today, taking a bit of a step back too. Um, I was going on a bit of a ramble. I could talk about left-handed pitchers all day, so don't let me get started. <laughs> Yeah, there's D Jake Diekman right there. Just got traded to uh, the Chicago White Sox for Reese McGuire, our boy, former Blue Jay. Yeah, I, I'm not sure the uh, audience of the uh, the podcast entirely, so I won't mention what uh, Reese McGuire is probably most famous for. But if you Google <laughs> him, 
It'll be in like the first three things you pull up. I think you probably, I think we, well, we don't have to get too deep in the woods, but I think you could probably, I think it's funnier to let the uh, listener Google it and find out for themselves. Um, yeah, the, Boston, Boston doing some wheeling and dealing Tommy Pham in Christian Vasquez out Reese McGuire out, or Reese McGuire in Jake Diekman out. Oh, t- Tommy Pham, um, is actually going in from Cincinnati. That's what's so weird about this Red Sox deadline. It's like they're swapping current players for prospects, but then also picking up Tommy Pham for some of their own prospects. It's Almost like they're just uh, trying to do a bit of a flipper, freshening up the uh, lineup a bit. The Red Sox are coming off a historically bad run right now, so I get <laughs> they need to shake things up. And even Baltimore is kind of good in the AL East. It's just such a hard division to win that I see that definitely not being the Red Sox year. But just puzzling moves. I don't get them bringing in Tommy Pham unless someone just has really intense fantasy football league. You need to bring in uh, that man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, maybe there's some fantasy ramifications that we don't know about. I think they, I, they're they stuck, and to some extent, they always kind of need to contend or at least have likable players in the lineup. They need to, I don't know, they, I, Boston's weird like that. Like, I don't think, though they have outright said they're rebuilding, I don't think they can commit to a full tank or at least they, they're, they're clearly not committing to a full tank bringing in someone like Tommy Pham, right? Well, no, I, I don't think they are, and I almost wouldn't want them to. I mean, you have a guy like Raphael Devers or Xander Bogarts as well. Like, they have some very high-end talent, and I get that they recently traded Mookie Betts, but even with that, they traded him for other MLB assets. They weren't trading him for guys a few years uh, down the road. So Boston seems to be sort of a reload, retool sort of franchise. I mean... It feels weird because uh, I remember growing up, I, I could have sworn the Red Sox were legendarily awful, just this cursed poverty franchise for 80-some years. And now it's been <laughs> like a healthy 20 years where they're just at the top of the American League East or looking to be back there within a year or two. They haven't actually done a full rebuild in this entire run. They just keep retooling and reloading. and. Right now, I think it's very puzzling moves they make, but hey, there's a reason they get paid to do this. Maybe someone there knows something that uh, I just don't see him dropping all these assets, but also getting Tommy Pham. You're right, man. They do. They do shuffle the deck and uh, they end up back on top, like out of nowhere, too. Was it 2013 that they won the World Series? But yeah, they'll come out of nowhere with a roster that you wouldn't think on paper would be the contender. And then here they are in the in the end. So I'm scared of Boston. I'm always scared of Boston. I was pulling for them in 2004. Not a day since then have I cheered for Boston. (laughs) We we all turned on them very quick, sort of like how anyone in, uh, that has to deal with the NL Central, all that Cubs sympathy went away four years ago. <laughs> oh, my God, it's like six years ago. Ah, pandemic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it, it was it was a literal time warp, the pandemic. Uh, one last thing, the Yankees adding more bullpen arms. Yankees are sick. Frankie Montes and Lou Trevino, not to be confused with Lee Trevino, but... Uh, <laughs> Yes, going going to the New York Yankees from Oakland. Uh, Aaron Judge, do you think he has a shot to break uh, to break the home run record or to break Babe Ruth's record at least, Roger Maris's? Um, I mean, he has a chance. Uh, 
certainly it would be it'll be exciting to see it's it's so tough um going after those kinds of uh marks because you just need to keep up such a ridiculous pace and he hasn't gotten so far ahead that i feel comfortable saying yes so if i had to uh place a bet if i was in vegas i would lean towards no he doesn't uh get 61 but um, i think he, i think he gets 50 easy by no means easy, but yeah, getting to that last uh, level, plus it is traditionally a little harder to get uh, balls to leave the ballpark in September when things are getting a little bit cooler. And well, also, if they have a playoff spot uh, clinched up, we are in different times now. You might want to rest Aaron Judge, not have him play the full uh, gamut instead of having just chase this uh, number because. One thing I think the Yankees might be a little more worried about is they are in their longest World Series drought, which doesn't that feel wrong? Like, it's their longest uh-huh. drought in, like, half a century. Like, they does. went a whole decade without making a World Series appearance, the first time that's ever happened. That's crazy. That is that is absolutely insane. But, yeah, I guess the last one was the A-Rod 2009, right? Yep. The 2010s were the worst decade in Yankee history, even though... We still hated them the whole time, and they still basically had the Jays under their thumb for a healthy half of that decade. They just never made it all the way to the dance again. Crazy. Absolutely crazy. I will say, though, I do think, correct me if I'm wrong, but does Aaron Judge have 42 right now home runs this season already in 2022? I think he's already past 40, and... I think there's a really good chance he's cracking 60. I think he's cracking 61. I think there's a, there's an outside shot that he's going to challenge Barry Bonds. Like like you said, it's crazy to keep up this pace. Like there is still a full August and a full September to go in the baseball season. Like baseball is incredibly long. But Aaron Judge is smacking the baseball this year. I think he has 42 home runs as, as of this recording. I would I'd love to see him uh, go after the record. I mean. I'm not sure if I, do you remember in uh, 2001 how a point in viewing it always was? And no matter what you're watching on any sports channel, they would just flip over for Barry Bonds' at-bats every time the uh, Giants played. It was on that run. It was just such an insane thing and got people following baseball again. Obviously, same impact in 98 with uh, McGuire and Sosa, but it, I'd love for that to be a thing again. And baseball is one of those weird sports where because you know exactly when players will have their opportunity, everyone can just drop everything for four minutes, go watch an Aaron Judge at bat, think about baseball, then go back to what they were doing. It's not like hockey where it's like, all right, Austin Matthews is going for Gretzky's goal record this year. i got to watch all 60 minutes of this, and that'll take three hours, eh? Uh, I'll watch the highlights later. So it's just this rare scenario where I'd love to see someone chase the home run record again because, man, it's been over 20 years. Like, a whole new generation needs to get how exciting that is. Absolutely. Well put, man. Yeah, 1998, I was out there playing baseball every day with my friends in the backyard, specifically because, like, that home run chase just everyone loved baseball that year it was so good for the game and and sadly less so when Barry Bonds did it in 2001 but still like you said uh, you'd be watching a basketball game or something I guess uh at the start of the basketball season right like like near September uh preseason maybe or something you'd be watching other sports anyway and they would cut away and cut to Barry Bonds's at bats like 
it was appointment viewing like I've never seen before in my life. And like baseball has not seen since at any point. So I, it would be awesome to see Aaron Judge chase this mark. And I think he is he's like close to the pace, if not on pace. Right. How Have they played 100 games yet? I believe so. Oh, man. It's got to be right around there. It's got to be right around there. But uh, yeah, I would expect it's uh, it's probably over 100. I'd say probably around 110 if I had to guess, just because they only have uh, the two months left and they play almost every day, not quite every day. So yeah, I'd probably guess 100 to 110. <laughs> yeah, you're yeah you're bang on. Yankees right now are 69 and 34. So yeah, what what is that? Quick math on the podcast. <laughs> well, I'm just thinking about Big Shaq when you said quick math. It's gonna... <laughs> oh, that's funny. Oh right, but, uh, the quick math. Um, I was actually asking you. No, that's fine. It's 103 games. Uh, so yeah. yeah, you were bang on on that, man. And anyway, uh, we'll we'll uh, leave baseball with that exciting conclusion to that conversation. But yeah, go Aaron Judge. Uh, I hate that I'm saying it, but go Yankees. Actually, I'm way more comfortable cheering for the Yankees than I am the Red Sox for some reason. Maybe I'm a uh, cold and dead inside. Uh, perhaps that's it, Sully. No, I mean, time also heals all wounds. I mean, we were also just talking about uh, this Yankees drought. It does, they're not annoying the way that, like, they were when we were growing up, where they just had this iron grip on the American League East, and it's like, eh, maybe next decade. Yeah. I, I, I feel like, a, more, they, they, yeah, a lot, there is a lot more parity in the AL East right now. And uh, Derek Jeter's retirement, I, I feel like that kind of, like, Ended an era. We all, we all were like, okay, the Yankees, they're going to chill out now. It was similar to like when Tim Duncan retired, although the Spurs did kind of have a death rattle as did the Yankees. But I think, I think we're safe. <laughs> and uh, yeah, you know, I, I'm cheering for the Yankees deep down for uh, obviously like Blue Jays first, but if, if it happened, they wouldn't be the worst thing. Speaking of New York franchises, quickly steering to another sport. Uh, Nazem Kadri Islanders, type that into Google. You get a lot of hits, Pat Sully. Do you think that Nazem Kadri is going to the New York Islanders? Is that a good fit going back to Lou? Well, from my understanding, um, the main thing holding it up right now is uh, the Islanders need to make the cap space to do it. So I think it's pretty much all but a done deal. I mean, we've seen uh, weird 11th hour uh, changes in contracts before. More of the NBA, I think, but. Yeah, it's happened in the NHL once or thrice, but yeah, I think it's a it's a good pickup. Um, they have Matt Barzell there, so it's nice that Kadri gets to settle into the ideal Nazem Kadri situation, being a very good, I'd say, a plus second line center that can play both uh, both sides. Right, two hundred feet. That's the uh, that's the cliche. For, uh, I was thinking both sides of the. Uh, yeah. Anyways, I was mixing sports metaphors there. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, Kadri had just an amazing postseason, and basically, that's the nice thing about uh, sports cliches and uh, curses and chokes. Uh, it's it is that way until it isn't. Nazem Kadri is going to get suspended and cost his team a playoff run until he didn't, and he's not the reason the Avs won, but he's one of the reasons. And I do really like this for the Islanders. They're probably buying him at his all-time peak value so he's going to be making some bank to say the least 
well-earned. I don't begrudge him. Get those checks, Nazem. And I always have this weird sympathy for the Islanders because they've been good in my lifetime. Their four-peat ended right around the time uh, we were born. So I have no long-standing ill will to me. They're just that lovable loser that uh, is the second thought about New York team that John Spano just handlessly owned for a minute there. And <laughs> I'd love to see them actually complete a run. I was kind of in on the Islanders a, a year or two ago. Well, geez, we're only one year off of uh, them making the final four. And I liked that team. Really didn't like uh, how they looked this year. All of a sudden, those players started to look really old. Like, I don't know how that playoff run was harder on the Islanders than it was on the, the Lightning, but it seemed to be. And they were just awful this year. So I don't know if he will be the solution to everything. I think it's a step in the right direction. It just depends on the term, basically. Yeah, I bang on there. Uh, I feel for Nazem Kadri just growing up in hockey, the amount of shit that he's seen just in, in the last playoff run, the amount of horrible abuse that his family had to go through on social media. Just like that, that guy is, is somebody who has been written off and talked poorly about in all formats. And yeah, you got to feel good for, for Nazem Kadri getting that bag. I think that's going to happen. Um, I think it's going to be the Islanders. I think it's a great fit. Uh, yeah, that that playoff run, I think they just tuned out the coach, the Islanders, all at once. It was just a really bad fit. The the proverbial season from hell, as they say. And it, it all went wrong. But at, at the start of last season, I had Colorado versus Islanders in the Stanley Cup final. I actually thought the Islanders were going to be right there again. And they were not. I don't think they're missing too much. Nazem Kadri could be a huge addition. Yeah, like you said, they're, they're probably going to have to cut poof. I don't know if you look at their roster, pull up New York Islanders cap friendly, maybe a Brock Nelson would have to go. I, you know what I mean? Who knows? It's uh, we're not talking fantasy hockey. We're talking real life there, but like someone's probably got to get traded or something's got to happen. Like you said, for Nazem Kadri to make big bucks on the Islanders roster. I was looking at their lineup earlier and uh, just one of those things where you, you sort of lose track of the age guys are when they've been in the league for a while. Did you know that Paul Mary is only like 31, 32? Like, Dang. He's like a guy that's been, like, should be our age. Like, hey, didn't he come in the league at the same time as Marlowe sort of deal? Like, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. Not ever. And I could have babysat that young man, you know? <laughs> You know, I feel like because there was a Kyle Palmieri and a Nick Palmieri, I feel like there's been a couple Palmieri's. Maybe the Palmieri timeline is skewed. The, ti- the Palmieri space-time continuum. You know what? It, it very well could be that because uh, even though they're almost complete opposite ends of uh, success at the NHL level, I still get the Bens confused. Like, I always say Jordy's the one in Dallas, and it's not. It's always the opposite. Yeah. I just somehow confuse that one family. I can get all the stalls right. No problem. But nope, I get the two Bens confused. That's funny because there is a much higher stall variance than there is Ben variance. Although Jamie and Jordy, pretty pretty close to Oh, the thing about Jordy, Ben, is no other human being has ever been named Jordy. So that's how you so you remember the Jordy Ben played for the Habs and such. Man, I was a Trekkie uh, growing up too. How do I not remember the uh, chief of engineering with the cool visor? Jordan <laughs> Ben needs a cool visor. He needs to have that one of those tinted deals. That went right over my head, but I'm sure the Star Trek fans out there, big pop for the for that one, Sully. Uh, shout out to both of you. Live long. 
<laughs> Love it. All right, so before we move on to uh, more serious topics, uh, NHL, off the top of your head right now, Colorado, are they defending? Are they defending that Stanley Cup? Um, man, I feel like I'm I'm copping out. Uh, same with my home run answer. I'm gonna lean no because it's just so hard to repeat. And uh, we've seen we've seen in hockey, it might be the toughest. Um, partly because with such a hard cap, like they win the cup, they lose Nazem Kadri. They are having to pay the cup tax. They are making a switch in goal. Darcy Kemper was pretty rotten in the playoffs, but he was pretty good in the regular season. So it's one of those things. Will it be an upgrade, downgrade? Uh, Add in on top of that, all these guys just played an extra 20 games than half the league. Plus, the NHL allows literally half their league to make the playoffs. There's just so much opportunity. to. It takes one bad week to get eliminated. Yeah. So, short story long, no. I don't think they repeat. I think they're the favorites to win next year. I also think, yes, I think they are on paper right now, two months away from the season starting, the best team uh, going into uh, 22-23. It's just a long road ahead of them. And I would say the smart money is against them repeating, but that's comparing 31 teams to one. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a safe answer, but definitely the correct answer, probably. I, I mean, it comes down to Georgiev. Georgiev, uh, the, from the New York Rangers, the new goalie for Colorado, he's obviously is going to be, you know, tasked with a lot there. But uh, I, th- I don't know. I, he was going to be the successor for Henrik Lundqvist uh, until he just got he just got Wally pipped, as uh, as you say, um, by by Igor Shesterkin and now he plays for Colorado and that's a good spot to land in for him. So yeah, man, it's just on this, it's on this kid more than anything. Like you said, hard to repeat in hockey. The, uh, the Western conference though, I think it's, it's a lot easier than the Eastern conference is going to be this year. The Eastern conference to me is, is stacked this coming NHL season. (laughs) Matt, I grew up a Canucks fan and I, even though I become more sports agnostic, uh, there's still the team that get, most of my eyeball time and oh the pacific sucks it's so bad like, <laughs> yeah what a joke of a division vancouver nearly made the playoffs that's a terrible team it's but, not a good team they're not no, a good hockey team i mean we're all excited about the la kings uh, suddenly being good again part of that is they are beating scrubs half their schedule it, like anaheim they, oh no, no the, the coyotes aren't in that s- same division but it's and Sharks. and yeah. Edmonton will like, did they get better now that they have Jack Campbell? I don't know. They yeah. threw a, it, it's one of those weird things. Like that division can go any which way. I do think Edmonton get, did get better. I think they're arguably Edmonton and LA are the only teams that got better. Everyone else probably got worse. Like Calgary, God bless them. They got worse. They did add Huberto, but they lost 200 point scores. They got worse. Vegas, I think, got worse. And Vegas is another team. They just walk in off the assembly line, and they're just the toast of the town in that division for like two, three years. That's frustrating for a longtime Pacific fan, I'm sure. But uh, yeah, man, I, I think it's it's probably the Oilers or uh, the Kings division to lose. I think honestly, a bet on the Kings to win the Pacific wouldn't be the worst thing. No, I I don't hate it at all. I mean. We'll see which Jack Campbell we uh, we get next year. That could mean a lot for Edmonton. But part of it, they're 
I feel like their decor often leaves their goaltenders hung out to dry, but that's the other thing with hockey is uh, the hockey middle and lower class as far as contracts go. Those guys move an awful lot, so one a team could surprise us by suddenly having really good depth in their uh, you know bottom two defensive pairs and bottom six uh, players on offense, and also teams could get shockingly worse. Just sometimes you get the right and wrong chemistry fits happening uh, in places. So it, that's one of the reasons why hockey is just so unpredictable is also the way their contracts are determined. So many moving pieces, um, and it's less star dependent. Best players in hockey play well. The best forwards in hockey play 22 minutes a night. Compare that with basketball, where it's like 38 out of the 48 minutes a night, or you know, a quarterback controlling the offense in football. It's just you need the depth more in hockey than any other sport, and that changes so much more than any other sport. It's just tough. Absolutely, man. Yeah, hockey is so it, it's it's like trite to say hockey is so crazy, but it is. It truly is. The New York Islanders went from the Final Four to out of the playoffs. Vegas, like we said, built a team off the assembly line to instantly be a contender. Seattle, they tried to do a different approach, arguably, and now I think. You could argue that I would rather be a Seattle Kraken fan than a Vegas Golden Knights fan for the uh, for the reasons that you just uh, laid out. And that might be bold, but I don't know, man. Like Seattle's got some pieces for uh, for the future, and Vegas looks like a chemistry experiment gone awry. Vegas, like I don't know. It's almost like their GMs are playing the EA NHL game franchise mode and just. <laughs> don't know there's human beings tied to these contracts. I I get when they came in, part of the reason we all kind of were feeling Vegas that first year is, man, look, they took analytics, they moneyballed the NHL 20 years after that happened in baseball. And, well, then that same cold-hearted uh, calculating approach means they're just going to be like, okay, uh, thank you next to all the goaltenders. And, all right, Zidanov, we appreciate you coming. We got to trade you. We need to Eichel time. And they just don't seem to care. And when you have human beings attached, guys still want to go chase the bag. But you can't tell me someone with a contract offer for, say, Toronto and Columbus, I guess, the new hot destination, and Vegas, that they wouldn't have a bit more pause signing in Vegas than other places, seeing how they treat their players as just poker chips. And they are. It's no secret. Every sports team treats players like poker chips, but at least lie about it. Pretend. Like, take me on the date first. They're just, <laughs> oh, man, Vegas is just something else. Like, they they play the way we play fantasy sports, and it is not a good look. And it's also not breeding much success, but that's tough when you set the bar so high that first season, you almost can't help but fail in trying to follow it up. Yeah, I would say that it's it's been successful, but we're nearing the point where the window's about to close, I think. Well, maybe maybe you could argue that's harsh because like Jack Eichel is so young, such a talent. But it kind of feels to me like the window is closing in Las Vegas a little bit. So, yeah, I'm worried about that team, man. I don't know. And like I said, I, give me the Seattle Kraken in terms of NHL expansion teams over the Vegas Golden Knights. The fantasy approach, I don't know. It's not the right approach. Won't get any argument from me, man. I mean, it'll be interesting to see how uh, it pans out there. Seattle's the team I forgot in the Pacific. That's right. Both <laughs> That's expansion teams are out there. 
<laughs> along with like just three Canadian teams that haven't done anything in 30 years. So there you go. And the Aww. Ducks. Literally the Mickey Mouse franchise. The, the Ducks with Mason McTavish and such, the Mickey Mouse franchise are going to be right up there trying to win cups in like three to five years again. You watch. Like, I'm scared of the Ducks. Oh, no, no. I was just making a joke about uh, the company that owns the movie. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Like, I, I would probably trade places with them as a uh, Vancouver, as a friend of the Canucks. Uh, it, it's hard recovering from the Jim Benning era. Let me just say that. Oh, oh man. Jim Benning, Dave Nonis. There's been some names. There's been some names in Vancouver. Okay, well, while we're speaking fantasy sports, let's quickly transition to basketball. Kyrie Irving, Kevin Durant, your opinion, Sully. We're getting all your sports takes. So are they staying on the nets? Oh, that is so hard to say. Um, basketball is in this weird, uncharted territory where no sport has uh, the player empowerment of the NBA, but it's almost the antithesis of the NHL and just how star driven your results are. Like Kevin Durant is probably one of the 15, 20 greatest players in the history of the game. If he says he wants to go somewhere, they basically have to listen. Like, I mean, you can't have those guys hold out. I think they're owed a combined, but 70, $75 million. That's a, that's a lot of just, unused uh, capital that like, you can barely field a team at that point. I don't think they have any draft picks left, even if they could. So that's the thing too. What are, what are they losing for if they lose, right? They need to uh, put a competitive team on the court to some extent. But ever since the, uh, the Paul George and Anthony Davis trades, like the cost of NBA superstars is so through the roof. How amazing were the Raptors uh, luck wise to get Kawhi Leonard right before that bubble, like right before the pl- superstar inflation happened? I mean, yeah, Rosen, God bless him, great player. Um, loved seeing his glow up this past year in Chicago, but he wasn't Kawhi Leonard. And they traded DeRozan and Jakob Hurdle for Kawhi, the best rent player ever. It worked. He left, no hard feelings. It's the only time I've ever seen people just be like, oh, he doesn't want to resign. Thanks. <laughs> successful summer fling. You look back fondly on the rest of your life. It just worked out beautifully for all parties involved. Uh, it's absolutely <laughs> incredible. And you're right. Like right before that bubble burst, because the, the market is just completely broken. Now it just completely crashed. And now it costs seven first round picks to get a Rudy Gobert. Right? Oh, my God. That That is my least favorite deal of the entire um, postseason for the Timberwolves. I don't know how they're going to play. Uh, I realize you asked me about the Nets in the media. I'm like, no, we're going to talk about Minnesota. That's where you're going to play. <laughs> no, that's fine. Go. Yeah, go, my friend. Takes. But I don't know how you play Cat and Rudy Gobert together. I mean, as dominant as Rudy Gobert is as a rim protector, He's kind of unplayable against small, stretchy lineups. You take that power away from him. I don't know if you can play him against all the teams in the league. I definitely don't know if you can play him and Cat together. Like, Towns at the four, that is going to be rough when you have him going up against guys like Kawhi or like Kevin Durant. That when teams play smaller lineups and have these super athletic fours, like I wouldn't want Towns matching up with the honest, and that's what you'd have to do. It's just, I I see a lot of bad matchups there. It's like Minnesota just spent the entire farm 
in the hopes that they can build like the 1980s Houston Rockets around uh, Ralph Sampson and Hakeem Olajuwon. And I think we're past that time. They're out here looking like the 2000 New York Knicks. Doesn't make any sense to me what they did. <laughs> um, well, I do think we, we we saw a little bit of a Twin Tower renaissance last year, just in uh, we well Memphis, right, with Jaron Jackson Jr. and uh, Jonas, our boy Valanciunas. They they did all right. Cleveland too with uh, Jared Allen and uh, what's his face rookie Evan Mobley. Uh, Cleveland glow up of all glow ups, the Cleveland Cavaliers last year. So it's as though Minnesota was like twin towers. Let's do that. And then they got like a thunder and a lightning thing going on. But again, that's a fa- This is a fantasy trade. Like this is an NBA 2K trade. I don't I, I don't like this. I in terms of Minnesota actually winning a, an NBA title. Like, no, they might be top four or five in the West next year. Like Triple J and Mobley, both players I loved. And part of the reason is. They're so good defensively. They're these long, switchy guys that don't have a ton of weight behind them. Like it's, it's weird. There's almost a point in the NBA where it seems like you can be too tall, and Cat might be that. Like There's just too bulky a frame that you can't expect a guy that size to match up and move as quickly as some of these dudes a few inches shorter than him and like 30 pounds lighter. Whereas Mobley and uh, Triple J can switch and they can guard perimeter guys. You wouldn't want them doing it for 48 minutes a night, but they yeah. can do it in a crunch. Whereas Cat, I see more like he's obviously better defensively than Kevin Love. But it reminds me of when Kevin Love was out there uh, at the four for, well, the Timberwolves and then later the Cavs. Where it's just, you don't want to put that guy in the pick and roll all night. And... Having two guys like that, I don't know. It it just uh, it, it troubles me what Minnesota is thinking they're uh, accomplishing. Yeah, it, to me, short term success. Maybe win a playoff round or two. I don't think they're going to challenge the Phoenixes or the Golden States of the world. I think Memphis would handily uh, defeat Minnesota. Uh, yeah, I don't know exactly what the what the long term play is here for Utah. You see the long term play completely rebuild from the ground up, and it seems like Donovan Mitchell is probably going to be the next uh, step there. Yeah, I could easily see that happening. Um, I don't think there's a huge rush to move Mitchell, but if they trade him tomorrow, it also wouldn't shock me at all. It's They needed to move at least one of the two pieces, and they moved Gobert early, got a haul for him. So I kind of like their situation. They're sitting pretty where, hey, maybe Mitchell's back for part of next year and they try and make a move, or they make a move sooner, maybe later. It's... It gives them time, which uh, they did not have as luxury before they made the Minnesota deal. No, yeah, absolutely not. It, it definitely gives their fan base to kind of like a little bit of a warning shot. Like, hey, guys, this this uh, current build didn't work out. It might be the end of the Donovan Mitchell era. Yeah, um, uh, and I don't think anyone would be overly shocked. It's, uh, it'll be interesting to uh, to see what what the Utah Jazz uh, do going forward because it's a weird team where they did not seem anywhere close to contenders, but it was a good playoff team. Like they always seem like they're going to be the four seed or something every year. It's just, there seemed to be just a ceiling that uh, they hit with the uh, Gobert and Mitchell and the uh, surrounding cast. And I yeah. get them uh, retooling, especially for the haul they got for Gobert, who isn't a guy that I love on a lot of teams in 
in the NBA, and Minnesota happens to also be one of them. It's it's a weird fit. Like, could you imagine three years ago Detroit getting that haul for Andre Drummond? Gobert is better than Andre Drummond, but I can just see a situation where two years down the line and Gobert's playing 28 minutes a night. Yeah. Or playing more than that, it's because they're paying him $40 million. I know. Yeah, that's a, that's a scary comp, my friend, but I think you're right. Like, that's – it's a huge gamble for Minnesota. They need so much draft capital just wasted. But I feel like maybe they think that they could – perhaps just turn around and trade Carl Anthony Towns for a similar haul and just keep the uh, carousel going. You know, honestly, it's, it's the NBA, right. it's the new wild West. Who knows? No, you're, you're absolutely right. You just find someone who's in a similar crappy situation and you just trade places. It's uh, going back to the question that started the whole Minnesota tangent. If the Nets do trade, um, trade Durant and or Kyrie, they will get a King's ransom for either or both players and they will be fine or they'll keep on trying them out there. It almost seems like the, uh, the dead zone you don't want to be in as an NBA team is having that expiring deal of a guy who's really valuable because then you might get nothing for him. At the yeah, very least, even if you have a highly disgruntled player, I mean, look at Ben Simmons and they turned him into James Harden. You can just trade problem players for problem players. <laughs> and yeah, yeah, the, and the carousel just keeps on a spinning. Like, how many more times can John Wall and Russell Westbrook be traded for each other? And they're talking <laughs> about it. At least two or three more, I, I, I think. Anyway, you ever do you ever get into like those two K loops when you play a two K franchise where a team will trade the same player back and forth four or five times throughout a season? You see it sometimes on NBA Two K, which is hilarious. Also happens in MLB the, the show. It's uh, it feels weird to compliment the EA Sports titles, but I have seen less of that in uh, the NHL games, and I'm not even sure if there are trades in Madden franchise. <laughs> <Last> <laughs> it, I, I, if anything happened, it was probably like a backup lineman for a pick. It's just yeah. there's not really trades in actual football during the season, anyways. But uh, yeah, it doesn't seem like a factor in Madden. I think yeah, computer trades very very rare in the in the Madden franchise. <laughs> yeah, man. While we're talking basketball, and there's no easy way to do this segue, but we just we got to shout out uh, the great Bill Russell passed away on July 31st, 2022. Uh, I mean, you can sit here and name out his uh, accomplishments, which are vast and immense but uh bill russell's greatest accomplishments were as a civil rights activist as a leader as a uh just a a great human being uh off the court and uh yeah man he will be missed but uh as a basketball player 11 time nba champion five time mvp uh eight time uh sorry i guess there wasn't an all defense for a lot of his career but he would have been a numerous time all defense uh, one of the shot blocking Kings, one of the great on court coaches. He was a coach also and won titles as a coach. And yeah, just a sad loss, man. 88 years old, 88, uh, incredible years. Uh, Bill Russell, rest in peace to a legend. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, a few interesting Bill Russell, um, things that I wanted to, uh, bring up, um, the 11 titles. One thing a lot of people don't always remember. He only played 13 seasons. Um, his second year and I think his third last were the only ones where he did not lead the Celtics to the NBA title and he won the national championship 
his uh, two uh, college years before the uh, NBA. The man just won, plain and simple. And it's amazing that looking back on that era, in that time period when size was everything, Will Chamberlain literally was averaging 50 points a season and had a 100-point night. Bill Russell never led his team in points per game. At no point. He never had a 40-point game in his career. Wow, and I didn't know that. His contemporary was Wilt, and respectfully speaking, he was kicking Wilt's ass year in, year out. Like Maybe the craziest video game stats on a player ever, and Bill Russell is almost that perfect antithesis. It's something we... I can't even think of a contemporary example. The ultimate sort of team player. I, maybe the closest I can think of is like a Steph Curry in that he willingly took a backseat to let his teammates eat. It's like a little, yeah, Kevin Garnett. It's like a little, uh, it's like if Kawhi was also Ben Wallace or something, you know what I mean? It's like a little, yeah. And like, he was still known as the best. Um, Like you said, five time MVP, 13 seasons. They literally named um, the uh, finals MVP after Bill Russell. It's uh it's amazing the impact he had while being one of the most notorious uh, players in the world, but not being the offensive juggernaut. And he had plenty of offensive skill. That just wasn't what he excelled at. He was the captain, the anchor of their defense, and just an amazing team player. And he was also on amazing teams. We need to mention that. Uh, you don't win 11 in 13 years without a good supporting cast and some fine management uh, around you. And all that being said, all his accomplishments in basketball, it's probably the second most important thing uh, he has done, uh, leaving his footprint on human history. I mean, as uh, a fellow whose skin complexion is sort of like Casper the Friendly Ghost, (laughs) I'm a little out of my wheelhouse here, but uh, just everything I've read about Bill Russell, he meant everything at that time, which uh, was very much a time of civil unrest. And you want to talk about the shit Nazem Qadri has had to deal with, not to minimize that at all, but it would have been tenfold for Bill Russell back in the 50s and 60s. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And yes, yeah, we are two white boys here on a sports and wrestling podcast way in over our heads in this conversation. But yeah, it's like, like you said, you can just read about what he did and read about the things he had to deal with in uh in california and in massachusetts in boston in the city that he was winning titles for and it's it's just it's really tough but yeah he was awarded the presidential medal of freedom for his accomplishments this man was a real one rest in peace to one of the all-time greats bill russell uh yeah just very very sad a, a huge loss for the world of basketball and the world in general oh certainly All right. Well, on that absolutely uh, silly note, I think we must transition to the world of sports entertainment. We got to talk some professional wrestling. Sully, we both love wrestling. Did you watch SummerSlam, homie? I did not. Um, So by all means, let her rip. Uh, I don't feel comfortable commenting on something I I haven't seen. uh, Fair enough. WWE watching suffer during the uh, the pandemic. AEW hooked me. I, I really am that example of that, like, lapsed wrestling fan even if that lapse was 18 months but <laughs> companies are presenting a wwe like product has got me in so uh by all means rip away on uh, summerslam i would like to hear what happened so no, 
Yeah, well, uh, I, I, briefly, I'm going to not even go through the entire card, but yeah, things worth noting, uh, Bianca Belair won the title back, or no, she defended her title from Becky Lynch, wrapping up the whole Becky Lynch uh, defeating her last year at SummerSlam in like 16 seconds story. Uh, Becky separated her shoulder in this match, which was tough to watch, but she gutted it out. And uh, yeah, that was like the most noteworthy thing of the match, I think. But it was a, a pretty good bow put on this story. Uh, and then uh, Bailey returns after the match. Io Shirai and Dakota Kai, they're now a heel faction. And Becky Lynch is a babyface again, it looks like. That could be kind of fun. Um, yeah. Wow. Is this... Uh, yeah. See, here, I'm going to show my ignorance. Is Io, Shir- Io Shirai um, and Dakota Kai, are they on the main roster? Like, have they been? So uh, Dakota Kai, Dakota Kai was kind of sort of released. I believe she was, she was let go. Yeah. Io, Io Shirai was kind of in limbo because I don't think she wanted to return to NXT and her contract was coming up. As far as I had heard, that was the rumor going around. So it was, it was kind of seeming like Io Shirai was one foot out the door and Dakota Kai had already left. So if ever there was proof that Triple H just running the ship again, here it is, my friend. They re-signed Dakota Kai, and now Io Shirai. Officially, they are both on the main roster. And Io Shirai has been renamed to Io Sky. That is now her WWE main roster name. I guess we can't make the same uh, joke from the late 90s we used to uh, when they changed Steve uh, Regal to William Regal, that there were too many uh, guys named Steve. <laughs> I don't think there's eyes on the roster. And <laughs> you know, maybe this is progress because we're seeing a female not born in North America still have a last name. That's true. That's she it's she has like a five letter name and it's all caps, but it's something. It's a it's a full human name. Like it's bad enough to be not born in North America and suddenly you lose the Antonio or what was Seamus? His last name was O'Shaughnessy. They kept his first name. It's weird. They just oh, the rare. Yeah. Finley never was fit in the WWE. And I mean, the ladies too, like think of a long history of nobody having a last name after Trish Stratus. That's true. Alexander Rusev lost his last name. Adrian Neville. Yeah, all the ladies, like you mentioned, too. It's crazy, man. Rusev. I forgot Rusev was an Alexander at one time. <laughs> he was an Alexander Rusev. He sure damn was. Uh, yeah, so yeah, SummerSlam. Uh, Logan Paul looked pretty good. Beat The Miz. He's a full-ass WWE wrestler now. He's, like, signed to, like, a multi-year contract. He's going to be, like, at shows possibly on raw or SmackDown, like wrestling, like Logan Paul wrestler. That's a thing. You know what? Bully for him. Yeah. Wrestled the guy that uh, got on because he was on the real world. Right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. Man. Yeah. Man. (laughs) Can't be too precious about it. And honestly, Logan Paul is a good wrestler. Like at this, at this stage of the game, two matches and he looks pretty damn good. Like he's a natural. He really is. You can't, can't hate it. He's uh he's he's a good performer. I liked what I saw at, um the bits and pieces in the WrestleMania tag. Uh, so I'm not surprised. I'm glad to hear that uh, they put on a good uh, at least a watchable performance. 
Yes. More than I can say for some of the stuff we watched this weekend. Yeah, man. Oh, my God. No doubt. We're going to get into that. But, yeah, Logan Paul, probably, like, one of the best, maybe second best match on the show. Uh, what else? Uh, Edge returned in the Mysterios versus Judgment Day match. So, uh, the, this group, Finn Balor, Damian Priest, and Rhea Ripley, they turned on Edge. This was Edge's big return. So, he's back looking like Anthony Jeselnik. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's wonderful. <laughs> oh yeah what else happened oh pat mcafee versus happy corbin uh baron corbin former indianapolis colts there pat mcafee looking winded in this match it was it was fun to see like in in like a morbid way you know like oh this poor this poor guy is tired he was he was sucking to win but i i did think that they had a good match overall but yeah pat mcafee was he was, he was it was fun to see <laughs> I didn't realize that they were uh, teammates at one point. I, I knew that uh, Corbin played for, I think it was the Arizona Cardinals at one point, but that's very cool. I didn't realize he was on the Colts. Yeah, it was a big part of the buildup. They were talking about it. It's it, it's a good story. I guess they they wanted to get into wrestling and talked about it. They roomed together back in the day and stuff. So of all the matches on the show, I was actually quite interested in checking this one out. I do think it delivered, but <laughs> McAfee's uh, not used to working the WWE schedule. It's clear. That's fair. That's fair. Um, yeah. Uh, the match of the show for sure was the main event, though. Roman Reigns, Brock Lesnar. For the seventh time, I believe it was, last man standing. You should check that match out. It was pretty good. There was a tractor involved. I don't know if you've seen those uh, those gifts out there. I have not. Um, I It's weird. I am bizarrely have stayed spoiler-free without putting any real effort into being as such. But, wow. yeah, I had no idea that um, there was a tractor, apparently. Right on. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sir. Yeah, yeah. Brock Lesnar is a big old country baby face. Uh, you, you gotta love it. But yeah, this was actually like one of their best matches, it, possibly their first one still, where Seth cashed in. And that one, that match was actually incredible. That might be the best match, but if not, it was probably this one. Honestly. Wow, I'm glad to hear it. it's one of those things where um, they always do have good matches. I mean, it varies, but it, it always very high floor on those matches, like. You're never going to ha- have a bad experience. It's just I, they keep being the same drum. Um, and they do say it's the last time, but hey, remember Roxena once in a lifetime? Remember ECW One Night Stand? Hey. Remember like six years ago when Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn wrestled at like the July pay-per-view and it was going to be the <laughs> end of their rivalry? I do remember that. Oh, man. Do you remember uh, WrestleMania in 2008 when Shawn Michaels said, I'm sorry, I love you, to one Ric Flair kicked him in the fucking head, and that was supposed to be his match a decade plus ago. We just hit a better transition than half the ones on the uh, TNA show we're going to talk about. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. I, I'm proud. I'm proud of that one. Ric Flair's last match also happened this weekend, July 31st. It was. Do you you watch this thing? You check this out? I didn't watch the whole pay per view. I made a point to watch the uh, the tag match main event, which made me regret not seeing the rest of the show because I'm not going to go back and uh, watch it most likely, but. Yeah, the the main event was it was scary. Um, mm. in, in hindsight, knowing everyone's alive still, um, I can say it was it was disappointing. I, I'm more so just happy. Like I hope this is the last Ric Flair match, respectfully speaking, to 
maybe the greatest wrestler of all time and certainly one of my favorite wrestlers of all time. But I, if I want to see another Ric Flair match, I'll pop a tape in. Yeah. I, and the, like, I, was he hurt, do you think? I do. I actually, yeah, the rumor is he, like, fucked his foot up in training, right? And I, that, that was part of, that was part of why he was walking so poorly. Even like in his entrance, it looked like he tried to strut and stumbled and was like, like he could have put weight on his foot fully or something. But yeah, no, it did not look like Flair was in any condition to be in there. He did not look like he didn't look healthy, man. Like he's he's just an old man and he looked like he was hurt, banged up, and maybe overtrained for this. And yeah, it was it was not. F- fun in the way that we were all hoping for it to be fun i don't think i thought the heart attack spot was a little cheesy like come on that like flair like oh my like yeah i mean i is i guess it's sort of like when jerry lawler makes made those cracks about uh his own heart attack where it's like i would just be watching and feel uncomfortable it's like i, I mean i guess if anyone's allowed to make fun of this and turn this into a mid-match angle it, it's Flair or Waller in that weird um, comparison I tried to make. So if he's fine with that, I guess I shouldn't be insulted, but it was still uncomfortable. I, th- I still felt a little gross watching it, especially oh. like, hey, this could be real, you know? Like, why, why make this a spot? What if it <laughs> did happen? Um, just the, the old Jim Cornette thing. Wrestling is supposed to be poor taste done in good taste, and that was just poor, poor taste done in poor taste. But yeah, so Ric Flair bleeding all over the place. Just uh, wins by pitting Jeff Jarrett and himself in a figure four. So let the record show that 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 should have been a double pin. I think this match was a draw, technically, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, Yeah, Ric Flair wins. Kid Rock celebrating. Undertaker, Mick Foley, the hitman, Bret Hart at ringside. All the family. Conrad, unsuccessful in his attempt to kill this man in the middle of the ring. But uh, a fun time was had by all, nonetheless. Yeah, and you know what? Jeff Jarrett really impressed me. Like, I, I mean, I don't need oh, to see more Jeff Jarrett matches. I wouldn't hate if, um, like, w- he's working for WWE. I believe he's a road agent or in the offices somewhere. If they told me I was going to see a Jeff Jarrett versus, you know what? The Miz gets all the weird opponents. If they did Miz Jeff Jarrett, I'd watch it. Why not? I'd watch a Jeff Jarrett. I'd definitely watch a Jeff Jarrett WWE match. Dare I say a, a Kurt Angle-ish couple match run. He was actually the referee in the tag team match, the Usos versus the Street Profits on SummerSlam. He is definitely working with WWE. I think he's, I think his role is that he's in charge of house shows. He's like the, the leader of like the live event department, I believe. Oh, nice. Yeah, I think that is his role. So yeah, Jeff Jarrett fully involved in WWE again. He has outlasted Vince McMahon in that company fucking somehow. And uh, I, I think we could see Jeff Jarrett uh, in the ring again, for sure. Yeah, wow. I hadn't thought about it. It's funny, like, all the times we think about the weird correlations and how Vince McMahon is no longer there, but blank, blank, and blank. And it's just always so weird and bizarre. Yeah, right. Like, it really seemed like, Vince always seemed like rest from my cold, dead hands sort of type. Absolutely made the right move stepping down. I just think it shockingly made the right move. It doesn't seem like there's been a long history of the right move being made. But <laughs> that is safe to say. Tip my hat when you need to tip your hat. So fair play to them. 
Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, a million percent well put there. Uh, yeah. And Ric Flair's last match, I think at the end of the day, probably wasn't the right move. I think of anything, they maybe could have, dare I say, postponed it. But that you can't postpone this. Like if Ric Flair was hurt, I think you just had to go with it. And yeah, sadly, it wasn't even what it could have been had they done it like maybe even a month earlier. Like some of those training videos that you saw come up on Twitter or whatever, Ric Flair looked much better than I, I feel like he looked on the night of. Well, that's why I was asking if he was hurt because I I caught some of those uh, even before you asked me to uh, to join, and then after that, I'm like, oh yeah, we're gonna watch this. So for sure, I got a little bit hyped up even for it. And I, I mean, he didn't look like uh, AJ Styles out out there, but he looked very he looked excellent for 73 first and foremost, and he looked good for even Ric Flair 15 20 years ago when he was hanging back on like. It just it was unfortunate that uh, the match that the most eyeballs are going to be on. Mm. Hopefully it is his last one. It's too bad it went that way, but I really hope they don't try it again. Especially like how bad would it be for all the people that paid tickets for this last one? Exactly, because this one was built so fine. That was the only hook for this one. As much as it all pained us to admit in uh, 2008 when Shawn Michaels super kicked Ric Flair, we all kind of knew where this was going. Deep down, we all kind of knew that in 2022, we'd be watching Ric Flair's last match live on pay-per-view promoted by some carny who married one of Ric Flair's daughters. We all knew that's exactly how this was going to play out, Sully, I believe. And it did. It did. But now, like, this one feels like the last match. So if they do another last match, that's just that's just lying to the people at this point. Remember when Terry Funk seemed old to still be at it? And, like, Ric Flair just, like, sprinted past what crazy in the the year 2000 when we were watching Terry Funk in, like, his early 60s. And it's like, this guy's nuts. (laughs) And not to say he wasn't nuts, because that was nuts as well. But, yeah, Ric Flair, just a whole new new decade of insanity. Getting superplexed off the top rope in his underwear in his 60s. You know, it's... uh... (laughs) Something else. Uh, like, speaking of one last, well, let's touch on one last specific spot of this match. Did you see that they kind of set him up for a superplex and then kind of changed their mind? Like, Ric Flair didn't reverse the move. They just decided not to. Yeah. Um, it seemed like there was a bump that just led to there being no further flare bumps, and which was smart. And like, I don't remember, and I could be wrong here, I don't remember Flair, like, falling again after they changed their mind about the superplex it it was weird um way less awkward and uncomfortable to watch them change their mind like visibly than it would have been to watch rick flair get superplexed the way that match had been going so yeah great I'm call at audible yeah, no, that was definitely the right audible. I think you're right, too. I think they they pulled him off the top rope, delivered a normal vertical suplex to a 73-year-old man. And that was the point where Ric Flair basically stayed down. So, no. All right, here's how's this for a transition? Speaking of things that should have stayed down, NWA TNA. <laughs> so, like, uh... <laughs> how does it still exist? 20 years. 
WCW dead. ECW too beautiful for this world. Just stealing copywritten songs, like giving Cactus Jack a time to shine and Eddie Guerrero and Dean Malenko and the Tasmaniac and Rob Van Dam and all our favorites. They're dead, long and gone. Ring of Honor has been saved, but it died. It was resurrected. NWA TNA is still going strong. Just, just not a bump in the road, really. No, and like it has survived so many changes in ownership, multiple name changes. They yeah, can't actually stop. numerous bumps in the road, lots of bumps. Yes. <laughs> oh yeah, like they still don't know what geometric shape they want to to fight in. It's ridiculous. <laughs> I kind of like but- the success. But yeah, so so we're going back to 2002 here, my friend. So we uh we've covered a few TNA shows before on the podcast. We've covered some like modern day Impact. Boris covers Impact for Slam Wrestling, so we we do talk a little Impact here on the podcast. But yeah, at the 20 year anniversary of NWA TNA, we watched the first TNA Weekly pay per view. It is a it is a trip. It is a mind fuck of a fever dream of a wrestling show. So we, uh, we, we're going to come back every now and then and check out 20 years TNA. And uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the podcast, my friend, is because you bought this show with your own hard-earned money in 2002. So before we get quite into it, Pat Sully, who was Sully in 2002? Where were you? Who were you? What were you? Uh, at this time, and what would possess you to buy uh, NWA TNA show? Well, uh, this would have been the summer for me between grade 12 and uh, grade 13, which absolutely is a thing that used to exist. I swear <laughs> I'm not lying. We were the last class of it that year. But uh, yeah, so I would have been just between, um, just on my summer break, uh, going to Lockerbie and Sudbury, uh, show to, <laughs> to all of them. But, um, yeah, Bell Express View had this weird deal where they would show one NWA TNA pay-per-view a month um, of their weekly pay-per-views. And it was just the last week of the month that they happened to show it. I missed the first one they aired, which I think was episode three of TNA, if I'm not mistaken. It's hard to keep track. It was They didn't air the first episode. It was either the second or third. And then this was the next one. And... The whole reason I ordered this show is because there was a low-key versus Jerry Lynn match, and I hadn't yet watched low-key wrestle, but I heard him through reputation on this uh, wrestling message board that I frequented. There was a lot of people super high on this low-key guy, uh, this American Dragon guy that he was feuding with, and uh, this Christopher Daniels fellow. There were these; those three dudes uh, were getting a lot of play in um, like 2000, 2001. So I wanted to watch Loki, Jerry Lynn, always a good time. Felt like checking out this new show, and it was also easy to part with ten dollars. It was ten dollars for the two-hour uh, pay-per-view. So yeah, it, it was easy to turn over my money for that, and I tuned in, and wow, it was a lot of very different things took me on a bit of a roller coaster (laughs) yeah uh, absolutely i did think overall there was like one surprisingly good promo some good matches but you also saw some of the worst of professional wrestling some of the worst of tna uh yeah i've been talking show for 20 years um i'm sure it's one of the first wrestling conversations we had is uh it was like the thing that never wound up on wrestle crap or 
had not been covered. I've seen it brought up a few times in more recent years, but Puppet the Midget, I, I he was billed as that. I'm not yes, trying. His words, his words, not yours. Like like that that is his given name in wrestling. I think it's on his birth certificate. But he pulls a <laughs> gun on Jeff Jarrett, and uh, that's not the part that always cracked me up. It's how Jeff Jarrett disarms him. I suppose I, I'm jumping there, but uh, there is somebody who pulls a gun on this show and how that whole situation is resolved was just peak absurdity to me. So, yeah, I would show this random TNA show to any wrestling fan friend um, I could. And it was sometimes I try and lure them in with, hey, you want to watch a low key match or it's, you want to <laughs> see the most ridiculous segment I've ever seen? <laughs> Either one, either one would probably have worked on me. Well, we can get into it pretty quickly because I thought that, that this happened near the end of the show. I actually, part of my memory had this as the like final angle of the show. And it tried to like go off with like a, uh, off the air with like a big shocking thing. But this just happened kind of right in the beginning of the show, like randomly. So our, our, our video, our, our TNA pay-per-view opens with women dancing in cages and Mike Tanay uh, yelling, as per usual. This is how wrestling was in 2002. Women danced in cages and Don West screamed in our faces. Yeah. Um, wrestling wasn't great to women 20 years ago. It doesn't seem like it's amazing now, but it was much worse. It, that, I think, is the biggest shock is just... The certain language and just the way that uh, the female talent was treated is just like talk about being a time warp. You can definitely tell that this was the same year that gave us HLA, the Billy and Chuck wedding, uh, Katie Vick. Is he cheating on his pregnant wife, Sarah Undertaker, with some random trainer? Al Wilson. Those are also all 2002. It's like the bottom of the shoe of professional wrestling was this year. Outside what, of Ring of Fire starting up, basically. What a deep cut on The Undertaker's trainer and Sarah Taker. I completely forgot that that thing existed. Oh, my God. 2002, <laughs> yeah, it was. The Undertaker's penis, because they wanted me to think about the zombie sex life. Gross. Oh, good heavens. All right, so our first match, the, the duality of professional wrestling here, the duality of TNA. We start off with AJ Styles versus Elix Skipper. Pretty good wrestling match here. Elix Skipper, uh, famous for one moment and one moment only when he did the the rope walk atop the steel cage and did a hurricanrana on the... Was it Christopher Daniels who took that bump or AJ Styles? It was one of those two. Um, It was one of America's Most Wanted. Oh, my bad. Okay. Yeah, it was um, Daniels was um, uh, Skipper's partner. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Anyway, yeah. So the uh, steel cage uh, was the highlight of Elix Skipper's career, but this was a good match as well. Eli, uh, I, I don't know. Elix did a lot more uh, grounded wrestling than I thought. I thought he was more of like a high flyer, but there was a lot of submission in this match. Good, good little match, though. I believe it went like 12, 13 minutes. AJ Styles wins with the spiral tap, corkscrew splash. Good stuff here. It was. It um, it, it felt. It was a very, like, early 2000s indie match. Like, you just... There was a distinct lack of a lot of the tropes we would see later. Like, there was a lot of Rube Goldberg bumps and flips, but uh, a distinct lack of Shining Wizards and super kicks. Uh, you can tell when it was in history. It's a nice little yeah. snapshot. We're still at the point where people 
were putting the number of the year in their finisher's name. It was not yet tacky. <laughs> really good call. Yes, yeah, so we would see a, a key crusher uh, 99 later. Uh, oh, also, so Jay- thinking about that. <laughs> Uh, we also saw uh, Jerry Lynn on commentary here. Jerry Lynn guest commentator. Ooh, a little, yes. little rough. On this show. And there were three commentators already. Like, why? It was just overkill. <laughs> uh, absolutely way past overkill. So we saw a Monty Brown run in one of many. He uh, beats up Alex Skipper. They're, they fight each other uh, doing things. All of a sudden, Jeff Jarrett heads to the ring. Jeff Jarrett with a uh, small human being in a burlap sack slung over his shoulder. I forgot that that's how this started, too. He just comes to the ring with a man in a sack. Which, I mean, Jeff Jarrett's a pretty strong guy to just carry that uh, satchel with a human being in it down the ramp. And <laughs> without too much struggle, uh, I and, you know, he's not someone who you see military pressing people. It, shout out to Jeff Jarrett. Strong fella. And, True. yeah. Then just... So, one weird thing we learned, and uh, I did not go back and watch episode six, and I never had the context originally. I basically rewatched this show through the same eyes I had 20 years ago. But Mike Tanay announces that Jeff Jarrett... Uh, his 60-day suspension, which was given on the previous show, was overturned, and the uh, TNA, oh, pardon me, the NWA title that was stolen by Malice slash The Wall was returned to Ken Shamrock. So they just off-screen eliminated the two storylines they left the last show with, and they did it in the first like 15 minutes of the next show. Yeah, and again to like. To, to really sell what happened. So there was a wrestling match on this wrestling show. Uh, it's pretty standard, normal, good wrestling match between two young up and coming talents. And then out comes Jeff Jarrett with a fucking little person in a burlap sack, completely, literally just undoing everything that the show has done completely in one fell swoop. So that this could happen, the aforementioned gun incident. So the little person in the sack is not the little person puppet, the psycho dwarf, who is uh, who would come out later. Um, was it Hollywood, I believe his name was? Was the, uh, the little person in the sack who Jeff Jarrett beat up? I didn't pull up, like, uh, Anton Cage matches. I, I, I'm trying right. to try, and I didn't catch the name of uh, <laughs> the first um, worker that was out there. But uh, yes, I definitely remembered Puppet when he came out. Yes, I I, I, uh, I hate to belittle the the work of the great Hollywood to say it doesn't matter, but I don't think it really matters who was in the sack because the the takeaway here is that Puppet the Psycho Dwarf comes out. Jarrett's letting out a bunch of uh, little people jokes written by Vince Russo with Ed Ferrara cackling on commentary, which is another thing that we, I always forget about these very early TNA shows is that Ed Ferrara is on commentary for the first, what, couple months of this program. Yeah. And uh, it's just something else. They, uh, they did make a good call in moving to a two man booth. Cause uh, Don West would have been too much with a third person. And I, yeah. I like he, as a color commentator, he scratches a very particular itch I have. So poor John West. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Shout out to Don West too, also dealing with his own health issues. I mean, I I love me some Don West. And it was weird though. One thing I did like about Ferrara is he's the only man who can make Don West look cool. Like Ed Ferrara is so fucking sleazy. He made Don West look like fucking Don Juan. You know what I mean? Like he made him look like actually a cool, well-adjusted human being. But anyway, back to this. So Jeff Jarrett is uh, going to attack Puppet the Psycho Dwarf, but Puppet the Psycho Dwarf has something to even the odds, and he pulls out a goddamn Glock, Sully, a Glock 9, a fucking gun. This man pulls yep. out a gun on a wrestling show. And uses uh, Jared's WCW um, catchphrase of slap nuts. <laughs> Let's uh, call him slap nuts while armed. And uh, so then the, uh, I don't think they yet had the different t-shirt securities, like it's a uh, 99 NWO or something, but uh, the, a bunch of black shirt security comes out. And the distraction of all these security guards trying not to get shot gives Jeff Jarrett enough time, the number one heel in the company, by the way, to heroically grab a chair and disarm Puppet by hitting him with a steel folding chair. The most pro-wrestling solution you could imagine. How, how do we disarm this man? Hit him with a piece of furniture. <laughs> <laughs> with a chair and so the crowd was actually kind of with this like the chaotic nature of jeff jarrett bringing a person down to the ring and you making the short jokes and then puppet the psycho dwarf comes out and they're they're doing this thing but so the crowd was kind of making noise you're kind of with it but when i say this crowd went silent when this man pulled a gun out i have never heard a wrestling crowd make less noise i think it was it was as though like they they talk about bruno san martino winning the or losing the title to ivan kolov and he thought he went deaf because they, you could hear a pin drop in madison square garden or whatever that story is they 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 talk about the silent pops in wrestling they need to talk about the day that puppet the psycho dwarf pulled a fucking gun and the entire uh, Nashville fairgrounds shut the fuck up and thought that this guy was going to shoot somebody. This was, this was uncomfortable silence. Like I've never seen in wrestling. Oh, that see, that's amazing. I interpreted it totally differently. I thought that they could not possibly have cared. Like I just, no, maybe that at all. I, I didn't. So I, I'm kind of glad that to, to get that other perspective of it, because to me, it's just like they were just like, wow, what what is this? Because it, it was just so absurd. I, I'm shocked I didn't see a single face in that crowd howling with laughter like I was like, <laughs> upon first viewing. And still to this day, every time I see it, I just die of laughter. Something about the visual of the chair shot to the gun toting puppet. To his weird delayed, like, jumping belly flop, like, he splashes the ring cell of it. Oh, chef's kiss. It's so good. (laughs) A jumping belly flop cell of his disarmor chair shot. Yeah, man, yeah. The crowd went silent. I think you actually, you're probably right about the reason why they went silent. Although, this is a crowd that booed black people and gays quite frankly like to put it to put it in literal terms so i think they were kind of believing this to some extent <laughs> that's my read on it but yeah i i mean i don't necessarily think i would recommend the entire show but this segment is i think must watch i've been trying to uh, spread it around uh, like a virus for the last 20 years so thank you for aiding and abetting in the 
me doing that again here today. <laughs> no doubt, man. Yeah, it, it's so bad, it's good professional wrestling. Classic Vince Russo in that way. Like, one of the all-time Russo hits, but so bad, it's good. Just absolutely insane. Kind of just want to rock through the rest of the show at this point. Slash versus Sonny Siaki. So we get like a Sonny Siaki promo before this, doing the worst version of The Rock you've ever seen, ever in your life. Don't you ever, ever look at Sonny Siaki's ass, though, Matt. Seriously. <laughs> He's really not about that. He's not here for your male gaze. <laughs> That's amazing. Sonny Siaki just adamant. That Goldilocks is not to look at his ass. I don't know why he would be so upset by that. You know, like I, I'd be, I'd be flattered if Goldilocks was checking. Anyway, that's maybe that's just me. I'm no Sonny Siaki though. I'm no flying Elvi. <laughs> just the weirdest short-term stable, and the show had been existing for seven episodes, and how is there already just trouble in the flying Elvises? Just hit the ground running with tag <laughs> partners that don't like each other. Uh, the second instance of it, because we already had AJ Styles and Jerry Lynn, who apparently don't like each other, and are the tag champions. Uh, Vinny Rue. Vinny yeah. Rue. That leads us into the Sonny Siaki slash match. Um, yes, slash versus Sonny Siaki. Uh, a, uh, well, yeah, just uh, very much a 2002 TNA match. Not very good at all. Slash, he wasn't Crowbar. Who was he? Was he in WCW? Slash? He was one half of PG-13. Um, ah! Not Bill Dundee's kid. Okay, the other one. Um, yes, yes, yes. Uh, Wolfie D, as it were, yes, from PG-13, from ECW. Great call, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, Slash somehow wins over Sonny Siaki. I was shocked at that result. I thought Sonny Siaki was for sure going to win, but, yeah. Slash getting the push, the push with the Father... The Covenant. <laughs> oh, Father James Mitchell and the New Church. Yeah, I, I love James Mitchell. Like, I have the biggest soft spot in my heart for that man. Uh, and the best of the, like, four different guest commentators we had in matches on this night. For sure. But uh, what the hell was he talking about? I thought I was... Uh, I Honestly, it, it felt like contemporary uh, wrestling, where I was uh, watching a Bray Wyatt or Fiend promo and just having no idea and caring even less. Uh, I just remember the way he said blood of the ah dad was very, very infectious. And I've been saying ah dad for days now. <laughs> no, with no clue what the fuck it could possibly be. But yeah, so yes, uh, Slash wins by putting a bag over Sonny Siaki's head and hitting the rude awakening neck breaker. But what is the significance of the bag? Asks Mike Tanay over and over. Um. I don't know, and <laughs> like the thing I, I want to know is, it doesn't make it effective because it it takes away your vision, or is it does it have the same wardrobe altering properties of say the People's Elbow or the Western Lariat or the Hip Hop Drop when um, Brian Lawler would put the goggles on, where if you adjust your wardrobe or change someone else's wardrobe. Does that make the move better? Because like, like you said, it was a simple neck breaker. But he put a hood over his head. So I, I don't know. It, it blinded him during the move. I guess knocked him unconscious. Yes, exactly. I think it restricts airflow, I believe, is the science behind why it's effective. Okay, uh, <laughs> yeah. You just regain consciousness at the three and a half point. <laughs> 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's exactly it. Uh, yes. So yeah, post match, James Mitchell baptizes Sonny Siaki with blood. They're allowed to call it blood too. It's not red liquid because this is pay per view. They're allowed to say the word blood. So Russo finally got blood in on this show. It only took him 22 minutes. <laughs> and you know what? It actually was more effective than all those new blood angles when they would just drop vats of it from the ceiling. Just <laughs> simple thumbs worth. You get the idea. It, uh, yes. it was for Vince Russo standards understated as understated as the blood of the odd ad. <laughs> it's so funny that you're, you're right. Somehow that was understated because compared to a vat of blood tipping over from the roof and completely missing its target, that was indeed understated. So yeah, next we had probably the only thing on the show other than Loki that was really worth ever seeing. And it's even then debatable but I thought this was this was interesting. This had a lot of legs. Obviously, I wouldn't trust Vince Russo as far as I can throw him, let alone to pull off something with the nuance that this storyline would have required. But it was at least interesting in my eyes. So the the women are dancing in cages because LOL TNA and who should come out. But Ron, the truth killings, who uh, basically says that this these women and specifically a woman of color in the cages being you know, uh, being humiliated. And this is, uh, you know, this is just uh, degrading to her. So uh, basically the woman tells Ron Gillings to fuck himself and she slaps him. And uh, (laughs) this was was a lead up to Monty Brown once again running in, brawling with yet another heel at this time, Ron Gillings. And then Ricky Steamboat comes out who is uh, basically the GM of TNA at this point. He is the de facto authority figure in charge of this show this week, and it would change very often. Yep, I'm glad you mentioned that because I I agree with you, Matt, and this is one of the weird things where it's not handled perfectly, it's not the greatest promo, but it's very interesting subject matter, certainly, and uh, it hooked me a bit at the time. Only for Ricky Simo to like, I think he was out of this company within the month. Yeah, like, I'm not sure if this was solved. Uh, this beyond uh, Ron Killings getting a title shot. Yes, yes, I'm not sure if this was his very last appearance, but it's like you said, he was he was not long for this company. If this wasn't his last, it was his among among his last two or three. So yeah, Ricky the Dragon Steamboat calls Ron Killings back out. And basically says, you've been talking stuff. You've been talking this nonsense about, for lack of a better term, racial discrimination. And we, you have a, you have a platform now. Talk to me about it instead of just like attacking people and <laughs> making fun of the dancers in cages. Talk to me about it. So Ricky Steamboat uh, hands Truth the microphone. And Truth basically says that uh, WWF never gave Ricky Steamboat a chance. Why? Because... He wasn't white, and he got the Intercontinental title, lost it right away, never got another chance to gain it, never got a chance to move up the card. Why? Because uh, the IC strap was always for second-class citizens, and we are second-class citizens because they held him back, sort of thing. And this uh, this is an appeal that obviously hits home for Ricky Steamboat, and this this strategy, be it a strategy or you know just truth from our truth, works and ricky steamboat says you know what i know where you're coming from and and our truth gets a shot 
next week at the NWA World Heavyweight Championship. And yeah, yeah like again, not not something that I ever want to see Vince Russo doing, but uh, I'm not even sure they landed the plane. But this was the most interesting thing on the show for sure. Yeah, it's I, I'm with you. It didn't. I, I was I left with mixed feelings where it's like. Wow, I expected it to be handled so much worse. It definitely could have been handled better, but all told, I it's something that still stuck with me. And I know we did uh, just rewatch it, but like I've also thought of this segment. Uh, I thought of it when uh, Kofi Kingston went on um, his title run, and it's like, wow, how much things have changed. But in a weird way, even though there were, it's something looking back through a twenty-year-old lens uh, hasn't aged well in some parts but other parts it really has like yeah. uh, the subject matter was ahead of its time the execution was probably behind its time the the fan reaction definitely behind its time after our truth oh, gives yeah. this intelligent heartfelt response basically like literally is like hands the microphone to ricky for his response and you could hear the crowd just booing our truth kick his ass ricky was literally audible in those exact words like it was it was it was something else but yeah, so Ricky Steamboat was was leaning heel here by listening not to racist. yes, yeah, li- literally by like not being racist, he was leaning heel. He was listening to these people who had been discriminated against, having sympathy for him, and that made him the bad guy. So well, it, tough look. Even, it's not even like the fans necessarily made that choice either, because our truth, the whole. It looked like the entire show was being booked as a heel. And like the whole promo ahead of time with um, the uh, cage dancer. Yes. Like that was to make to open the segment, have people leave booing Ron Killing. So it was it was strange. It was like they were looking to get a racist reaction out of the crowd. And I'm not sure if it was everyone there, but it, it certainly succeeded. And uh I'm just glad I wasn't uh, hanging out in Nashville 20 years ago. That would have been spooky. <laughs> yeah, man. Well put. That's all we need to say about that. But yeah, you're right about that. Like, our truth was definitely pushed as the heel. Like, he was insulting the cage dancer. He was he was being a bad guy up until the point when he spoke the truth and he had really good points. So I guess I guess that's like the idea of a heel in wrestling is that they are justified, but it's not like they're not supposed to actually be justified for real in real life. Anyway, let's move on because I think we've covered it uh, well enough. Match number three, malice versus Apollo. This was the wall versus Apollo. This was a, a mean guy, big guy match. Another baptism happening here. Lots of James Mitchell on this show. Which I was always for. Um, Oh, geez, I I did not prepare enough uh, knowledge on Malice slash The Wall. Uh, <laughs> I don't think he was long for TNA, but I don't know if it's because he passed away. I know he passed away within, like, a few years of this, but I don't know if, like, he passed away later this year and that's what ended his run. Because it seemed like they were building something up with him. I just know it never goes anywhere and, like, doesn't go anywhere soon. And then I never heard about him again. I just I don't remember how long he was alive and uh, if that's what ended his TNA run offhand. But, uh, yeah, it's just weird uh, looking back and thinking about how he was definitely one of those guys that seemed like every wrestling company wanted to push to the moon. Absolutely. 
he was far improved from his WCW uh, days. I mean, this match wasn't good, but I was entertained. It was fine, you know. Oh, uh, compared to compared to some of the stuff on this show, including the next match that we're about to get into, this was yeah, totally fine. Now, yeah, I put it in that like two two and a half ish star range probably for this one. No, yeah, you know what I mean. Like, yeah, nothing terribly wrong with it, but yeah, it was. Just uh, the worst, the worst part of Russo booking too. Okay, so Apollo wins this match clean with the super kick, but then at the end, all of the new church comes out, and by the end, you forget that Apollo has won because he's been laid out by seven guys, and also a Don Harris run in, and then Don Harris is getting baptized. Oh God, Don Harris was all over this show, and yeah, it was just, uh, it was weird knowing like what uh, later came out about the Harris brothers and the ra- the racial undertones of the uh, Ron killing stuff. And I'm just like, Oh yeah, R- Ron Harris, he's a big baby face, isn't he? Ah. Yeah. Oh, this show is showing poorly in some ways. Oh, Don't I didn't even think of that. You just saw what's next. <laughs> oh yes. Yeah. I didn't even think of that uh, Harris boys thing. Let's not even touch that with a 20 foot pole because let's talk about the next thing that aged terribly. We're yes. talking about wrestle crap. We're, we're talking about among the worst things I've ever seen in wrestling. The Miss TNA Championship, Taylor Vaughn, formerly known as BB in WWF, versus Bruce, uh, who is a heel because he is gay in this company in 2002. That makes you a bad guy, you see. I didn't know that uh, Taylor Vaughn was BB. That's fascinating. Um Bruce, also formerly known as Alan Funk or Kwee uh, Wee in uh, WCW. Yes, most famous Kwee Wee moment is getting absolutely vaporized by Goldberg on a spear, getting obliterated by one of the great spears of all time. Easy top five spear of all time, and like that is literally hundreds of uh, <laughs> different uh, samples. But yes, just got slaughtered on one slaughtered on one so yeah bruce wins the miss tna crown in what like two and a half minutes of the worst wrestling match you'll ever see in your life embarrassing for every possible reason you can think of as bad or worse as what you're picturing don't ever watch it a true embarrassment to professional wrestling and to us as humans yeah not not so bad it was funny it it's the longest two minute match i've ever seen in my life like when you just said it's <laughs> and I looked down and realized I wrote down that it was two minutes. I'm like, wow, I, it felt like a healthy five to ten. But, yeah, I, I have nothing nice to say about it. Um, I mean, it wasn't even interesting enough. Like, I mean, we could just talk about how clearly behind the times TNA were at this time. And, like, just booking any anyone that wasn't a straight white male as a heel, basically. I, I guess Monty Brown, but uh, they also only had Monty Brown beating up other people of color on the show. So, <laughs> yeah, they very clear lines in the sand. Yeah, uh, yeah, just just bottom of the barrel, bottom of the absolute earth professional wrestling. Bruce is your new Miss TNA. Uh, next up, this is the reason why you bought the show, big homie. Low key versus Jerry Lynn. Uh, solid. Before, that, before that match, there's a very brief, almost like the start of an interview. Goldilocks goes up to Low Key doing uh, chin ups above the fire exit, <laughs> which uh, is just bizarre placement. He's just up against this blinding red wall doing chin ups. Uh, Thank you. Jumps down and 
I forget what Goldilocks asks him, but Loki turns to her and says in just the deepest voice, like James Earl Jones has a like, level of deep voice here, just a total disconnect with the size of the man I'm seeing on the screen and Vin Diesel coming out of his mouth and just, I do my talking in the ring. Just <laughs> such a deep voice. And like, to this day, Loki's voice stands out as hilarious and amazing. And I, I don't know if that's the way he talks, if it's something he's put on and never broken with, but it's just wonderful. Anyway, hey, is, was that the first time you heard Loki talk right there? I don't know. I, I'm sure he talked to other places. It's the yeah. first place I had ever heard him talk. Because what followed was also the first time I ever saw him wrestle. <laughs> right, of course. So, yeah, you must have you must have laughed pretty hard hearing that voice. Like, I, I, at the day of 2002 on the day of. But, um yeah. That's funny. I didn't laugh at the stuff on this show. They probably thought I was going to like uh, <laughs> homosexual bashing, but uh, you know, you get someone being disarmed with a gun and just the deepest voice out of this like cruiserweight who I, I don't know Loki's actual size, but like on the way they shot him, he looked like he was about five, five. It looked like he was just a touch over Ray Mysterio size. Yeah. And just yeah, yeah. Shade. Mark Henry's voice coming out of him. It was amazing. Just a shade over Gresham right there. Yeah. But yeah, definitely a strong match. I would probably, we were putting a star rating on it, probably around three and a half, three and three quarter, maybe like it was very, very good. I wouldn't quite call it great because uh, trash ending with an inexplicable heel turn. It looked like so AJ Styles is on commentary for this match. Loki versus Jerry Lynn back and forth. Excellent technical wrestling contest. And then, no, 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 no worries. AJ Styles, yeah, basically, feel free to chime in, man. AJ Styles comes in like, near the end of this match, kicks Jerry Lynn, who he's just been talking up on commentary. They were friends. They were tag team partners. But he just comes in and kicks him in the head and then starts yelling at him. And I guess turned heel. Maybe he was lying the whole time on commentary. What are we to believe here? What's the story? Why do we care? Who knows? It's Vince Russo. The tag champs have to hate each other. That's just, just it. The way yeah. the world works. <laughs> but, um, yeah, the, the match was really good. I mean, standard uh, non-finish, uh, unfortunately. But um, the actual in-ring action, um, I definitely remember after watching it, I wanted to see more low-key. Uh, the whole really hard kicking, like Tajiri thing, was still very much a novelty at the time, and even to this day, he's some of the best looking and sounding kicks I've ever seen in pro wrestling. Absolutely, man. Yeah, he is. Tajiri is a good comp. Yeah, I, I don't know if you remember your NXT season two, the brief Caval run in WWE. I definitely do, because I, I, you know how, how passionately i felt about the whole lay cool thing in thinking layla was actually really good and not being in on michelle mccool at all yeah i, I do remember i i do remember that i remember your pro pro layla and and pro molina hardcore pro molina agenda oh yeah i, I okay i realize i made uh, molina sound like nick bockwinkle at times and she <laughs> but uh, i really thought she was actually very competent in the ring like, she had a lot of those, like, the aughts for the Divas division. We'll call it the Divas era when they used uh, that vernacular. I think she had a lot of people's best matches of that group. Like, 
she probably had the best Beth Phoenix ma- match that Beth had for like a five year span when she wasn't with, you know, Trish beforehand and some of the. Uh... I don't remember when exactly when Beth retired. I think she was. Uh, yeah, she was gone before um, we had the women's revolution thing that they. Called oh, yeah. It, right? Yeah, a couple of years before. No, I agree. Well, we watched it. Uh, NWA. I forget. Man, it might have been the NWA anniversary show or the women's show before it. But yeah, not too long ago, we watched a pretty good uh, Molina match on NWA. She is a good wrestler. Absolutely, she's underrated in the ring. Um. All right. Well, let's let's just get through the rest of the show. There's only two segments of note left to talk about. The first, jive talking with Disco Inferno. The worst wrestling uh talk show perhaps ever right up there like the body shop we think of the uh piper's pit we think of uh the cutting edge the highlight reel all of these things is there a worse one in history than jive talking um i'm going to say no with confidence and i'm if this isn't the only jive talking segment i know there were no more than five like it was so short lived and none of this led to anything. I don't think Paulina made another appearance in TNA. That's uh, hilarious. So it, it, it was a dumpster fire and it, it's not so bad. It's good to me. This is so bad. It's bad outside of one just moment where I, I just burst out laughing when Disco Inferno just cuts Goldilocks off and tells her basically to take her shirt off. Cause it was so blunt and crass. I was just, Literally, the shock of it was just like, oh, my God, as if he just said that. (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. So, yeah, that's literally what this is. Goldilocks is out there to promote an album, and Disco is just repeatedly telling her to take her top off. And uh, this ends with Paulina from WWE Tough Enough, who was a huge blonde woman, looked to be like over six feet and just like jacked. Uh, put Goldilocks in a sleeper hold. And I guess that was the first and only time we saw Polina. And like you said, one of like three or five times we ever saw jive talking with disco Inferno. I think he had like one or two matches in TNA. None of this went anywhere. And this was a complete waste of everyone's time. Disco did go through a rebrand and was a serious wrestler for like a year. I want to say it was Oh three. Before the uh, the impact era, um, they were still doing the weekly pay per views. He okay. was gifted Glenn Gilberti, and I mean, it could be some rose tinted glasses. I have not rewatched. Uh, I haven't watched the stuff since it aired nineteen eighteen years ago. But he kind of pulled it off. I mean, he was a much better wrestler than he often got credit for, and he was fine in a semi serious tough guy role. The problem was he also was still Disco Inferno, but I mean, people got over Drew McIntyre in the three-man band, you can get, you get a little over Disco. <laughs> yeah, sometimes, yeah, sometimes you get Drew Mac. Sometimes you get Heath Slater and Jinder Mahal. It is what it is. Hey, uh, Jinder former champion. It's true. WWE champion Jinder Mahal. It's more than you can say about the next two men, Scott Hall and Jeff Jarrett, your main event of this show one of the craziest Vince Russo overbooked matches I have ever, ever seen. We saw R-Truth, Monty Brown, Jerry Lynn, AJ Styles, and the New Church with blood and all run into this match. Ricky Steamboat 
ran into this match. There was a stretcher involved. There were chairs involved. Was there not a guitar? I'm sure Jeff Jarrett hit someone with a guitar at some point in this fucking absolute madness. Unless, no, because he didn't disarm Puppet with a guitar, so he must have uh, saved his guitar for the main. There's no That's, yeah. guitar. I mean, it's Jeff Jarrett. What else is he going to do? But yeah, so this was 12 of the longest minutes I can remember. <laughs> it was, I wouldn't even have called it bad for the first like seven or eight, but it just, it just spiraled into absolute like anarchy. It wasn't it, like the feeling that you got when the Nexus, you know what I mean? It wasn't like fun anarchy. It was just like, what is, what is going on? It's like a tornado was hitting this. Yeah, it, it to me was just like a 1999 WCW Nitro main event. Um, it was not good. It was not satisfying. Left a bad taste in your mouth. Um, seemed to set up a bunch of stuff that I'm sure wouldn't be paid off. I, it was just, it was pretty rotten. And like you said, the first few minutes, the action was fine. It wasn't, you know something I would go out of my way to watch, but it seemed like the first few minutes of a perfectly fine, serviceable main event. And then, like you said, we just have to overwrite everything. It, uh, just like to the point of comedy, like there was five, six, seven people ran in on this. It literally just got laugh out loud funny. Oh, the AJ Styles, Jerry Lynn thing was just weird. I, I wonder if that was their way of saying the exhibition is as important as the main event is by, they will also interfere in the Jeff Jarrett match tonight. That's interesting. And I can see, I can see that logic, like Vince Russo saying that and putting it together. But then wouldn't, if that were to actually stick, Jerry Lynn's interference should have led to a pin. Like he hit a move. I feel like it was leg drop or something. And then Jeff Jarrett immediately kicked out. So it was like, well, that was a fucking waste. Like what a goof he turned out to be. And I mean, considering as weird as this is to say about uh, TNA and what they would become, there actually wasn't a giant stable war happening at the time. So these people largely didn't have any connection to each other. So it was just weird. Now I'm wondering if like all of Vince Russo's love of stables is just so he can do these clusterfuck uh, finishes and have it make some semblance of sense. Like if half these guys were members of SEX or aces and eights or um, the Beatdown clan, uh, give me some other stable team Canada. Planet Jarrett. <laughs> the main event oh, mafia. Fortune. Oh, yes, yes. Fortune. Oh, my God. So, yeah, not a good show. The only good match, uh, the only for sure good match was Loki versus uh, your boy Jerry Lynn. And that even then kind of had a weird finish. And yeah, the only must-see thing, probably, puppet wielding a gun. They yep. will live forever in infamy. In, in professional wrestling history. Highlighted the show, not for the right reasons. Uh, I'm with you. I, If someone out there listening decides to cue this up on Daily Motion or something, it's the first match on the show. Elix Skipper and AJ Styles is pretty good. If you haven't seen Elix Skipper match sure. in 15 years, why not? He was a pretty good wrestler that I don't think ever got a chance to be like, I don't think I ever saw a 15-minute Elix Skipper single match. This is probably the longest Elix Skipper solo match I ever saw. And he was good. Worth seeing. Fun to see AJ Styles 20 years ago uh, doing half the same stuff. Um, but clearly just not 
having the same timing and pacing. So oh, better haircut though. <laughs> Slightly better haircut, significantly worse on commentary was AJ oh, Styles. Yeah, but, yeah, like as far as things that didn't offend me as a human being, um, that was the worst thing on the show. <laughs> like I, I'm not, I'm not counting that next to the Miss TNA segment right. or any of the uncomfortable feelings I got watching that crowd react to our uh, truth. But uh, yeah, AJ Styles commentary like did its very best to ruin that low key Jerry Lynn match for me. <laughs> And you know, in its way succeeded, I think. Yeah, he did successfully ruin a lot of it. Um, we're, we're, if you're willing to come on, we might have you on next week to actually talk about Ron Killings versus Ken Shamrock for the NWA World Heavyweight title. There's also a, a first blood match, a Dup Cup match, an evening gown match between Bruce and Taylor Vaughn. Good heavens. This oh. card is something else. I think the main event is triple threat, Loki, AJ Styles, Jerry Lynn. See, that sounds actually really good. Man, the no. damn. Hmm. Oh, I suddenly feel like I went through time warp because this is exactly how I used to end up watching <laughs> random teenagers. <laughs> Just like, oh, that sounds bad. Oh, that sounds worse. I want no part of this. Who? What, Karen Angle? What? Uh, uh, wait, no. Uh, Samoa Joe's wrestling who? Okay. I'll come <laughs> over. Samoa Joe's wielding a knife. What? What is this? Uh, oh my God! I don't I stop it. But even then, you have something like Scott Steiner cuts a promo this week. He's like, "Fine, I'm there." <laughs> <laughs> exactly. The duality of TNA. It'll keep us. It'll keep us guessing for the until the rest of time, my friend. But yeah, that's gonna do it for us. We went a little long. I usually try to keep this around ninety, but it was very nice catching up with you, homie. Very nice talking to you, and uh, we'll try to have you back again, man, here on SNME Radio, here on the BAM Podcast. Maybe next week. That'd be great. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me, brother. No worries, dude. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you all for listening. Keep it locked here, SNME Radio. Uh, we got. We, uh, hopefully, Boris and I will be back with NXT Talk uh, next week. And, uh, you know, we're, we're doing some good things. We got Mike McGuire on the main show, keeping the keeping the bus a rolling both literally and figuratively traveling across Canada, man. He, he did a, did some awesome work this week. Also put out a show for us talking the the Ric Flair final match. Didn't have to do that. It was on the SummerSlam uh, special, which was awesome with Joe Aguinaldo. So yeah, thank you all for supporting us. Thank you all for listening. Thank you, Sully for being here. Boris, get better. Stay safe out there. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.